0: Welcome to The Fray, a podcast that likes to entertain the big ideas from big thinkers who found big trouble. You are about to listen to part one, episode one, of a series that follows the life, philosophy, and legacy of Socrates, entitled The Alpha Human. I hope you enjoy it. So please, won't you join me as we enter The Fray? 12th birthday, my parents rented a VCR and some movies for me and my buddies to watch. They let me invite them over for a sleepover, and we were going to watch movies until we fell asleep or stay up all night. Either way, that VCR had to be rented because we're talking mid-80s now, probably early 80s, 84, 85, right in that time frame. So where I lived was in a really small town in New Hampshire, Technology just crept along. We didn't necessarily fork over the $1,200 that a VCR cost back in the days. But for my birthday, my parents thought it would be a great present to rent a VCR and get a couple movies for me and my buddies to watch. So that week leading up to our party or the sleepover, my buddies and I compiled a list of movies that I was gonna give to my dad. Because we live so far from uh, an area where you could rent a VCR, We were going to take, he was going to handle that, you know, after work, he was going to take care of it, get everything he needed, come back home, set it up and then we'd have our movie watching party. Very exciting. So we compiled this list of movies, most of them probably inappropriate for 12 year olds, but that's the whole point. You know, we were going to have a party. There weren't going to be any parents around. So we put a list together, even though I didn't check with my dad first, I put a list together of movies. So my dad comes home, you know, after work that night with the rented VCR and my, you know, I'm very excited to see what movies he got from that list. So it's important to note, not only were VCRs expensive, but a challenge to to locate at times uh, just because it was new technology. There weren't that many movies out there on tape for my dad to pick from. I wasn't aware of that really or didn't sink in a ton. So when I went running over to the bag that had the movies in them, and I'm flipping through you know, the plastic cases trying to see what movies he got, he didn't get a single one of the movies that we put on that list. Not a one. And so obviously my shoulders and the rest of me probably showed some disappointment. So as my father's sitting there un- unpacking this behemoth top-loading VCR, I-, I probably made some remark that none of the movies were what he wanted, what I wanted, I should say. And so he looks back, and said, listen, once I get this hooked up, let's go ahead and put one of these in and we'll preview it. And if, if it turns out that it's going to be, you know, it's a good movie, you know, we'll, you know all, all the better. If it turns out that it's not good, then maybe we can make a plan B. I was willing to go that far. We sat down after the VCR has been hooked up and my dad reaches in the bag and pulls out a movie and pops it in the, uh, in the VCR. What proceeded to happen of this movie, I, I was about 20 minutes into this movie that my dad had rented. And I turn to my father and I say, Dad, this is the best movie I've ever seen in my entire life. And I, I meant it. It really was. I mean, I couldn't believe what I was watching. And to, to cut through all of the suspense, the movie that my dad had rented and selected to watch was a movie called The Terminator. A movie starring Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, as the bad robot sent back in time to take out John Connor. Actually, technically, to take out his mother before John Connor is even conceived. And 20 minutes into this movie, if you haven't seen it, there's a, there's, what's happening in this movie, roughly, is the good guys and the bad guys are driving through this parking lot, blasting at each other with 12 gauges, just at full speeds. And then the thing crashing into the wall at full speed. And Terminator robot thing getting up and like just creating havoc was just, blowing my mind. So visually, probably one of the best movies I had seen at the time, but really what blew my mind was the premise. The idea of a time traveling murder that changes the future. After watching it with my dad and feeling secure that my buddies would also think it was the best movie they'd ever seen. So later that night, after my parents had gone to bed, I popped the Terminator in. and roughly the same time frame, 20 to 30 minutes into the movie, My friends couldn't believe how awesome the movie was. Or early that morning, about two in the morning, three in the morning. We're still awake, of course. We've made it through a bunch of other movies. None of them hold the candle to The Terminator. The Terminator is still on the tip of our tongue, really on the forefront of our minds. And the main reason for that is that crazy premise of going back in time and taking somebody out. So as, you know, as 12-year-old boys are wont to do, we start just kicking around the idea of what we would do if we had a Terminator or the ability to reprogram a Terminator and send them back, you know, starting off with taking out our teacher so that we, don't, we never get bad grades. Eventually, we settled on sort of a question about who would we take out if we had the ability to terminate somebody that would you know, be the biggest deal, I think is how we put it back then because we were 12. And you know, we started talking about his- historical figures, presidents, people like Hitler, You know, the typical thing, like you were in a bar and you asked the same question, you would probably get very similar answers. After about an hour of us just expanding our minds on this, the, the consensus of who we, who, if we sent a Terminator back and this Terminator was successful at sort of eliminating this person from the timeline, that would have the most effect on us. Like who we'd see the change the most. The answer that we as 12 year olds came up with was Jesus. Jesus was the consensus of us that night, and as 12-year-olds, we sort of coined the term the alpha human, not for being the son of God, but simply the one that has the most effect if terminated. It wasn't about taking out a bad guy so that more people would live. It was really about who historically is the most important guy. And that's why we settled on Jesus, because just in our daily lives, he was a big deal. So either way, whatever side of the fence you're on, Jesus Christos definitely is on the forefront of important people that if they didn't exist, would have unbelievable effects on our daily life. Over three decades later, I think I found myself the new alpha human, Socrates. Which, again, I think I could make the argument even to someone right now that Socrates is great and should be considered, simply by the fact that Socrates is famous, right? You know who he is. I know who he is. He's been in movies. I'm sure he's been in songs. His name is eminently rhymeable. He has a a popular mispronunciation of his name, Socrates, thanks to Bill and Ted's excellent adventure. He's, he's in our world. Like he, We know of him. Getting rid of him would have some effect. At the very minimum, we would lose that really great character from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. That's just the tip of the iceberg. Where a lot of people are now, if you're listening to this, is where I started. Right when I started researching and reading about this, as my idea of Socrates was kind of on par, I'm sure, with most of you. After this process, it's obviously dramatically changed, simply due to the fact that I'm already elevating him above Jesus as probably one of the most important figures in Western civilization. So, in order to start defending my, my answer to the question of what person would be the most Terminatorable, and I'm going to make that case that that person is Socrates. And I'm going to do that by examining not only his life, but also where he lived, and go all the way back into how we got there. And we're going to, over the course of all these episodes, hopefully uncover key areas that not only Socrates, but the world he helped create really did and really does affect us on a daily basis. We're going to talk about democracy, which obviously is still around. We're going to talk about the idea of how did such a small population of people over such a short amount of time create such enduring works of architecture, art, mathematics, law, how they do it. And lastly, we're going to sort of wrap it all up when we talk about Socrates' demise. We're going to spend a lot of time on where he was and the conditions in the world that he lived in and the world that grew up around him for thousands of years prior to his existence to allow him to be the guy we know today, 2,500 years later. And what makes it All the more amazing that we know about this guy 2,500 years later is one of the key things that makes Socrates, Socrates. He never wrote anything down. He never wrote a single thing down and this wasn't due to any disability or deficit. He was quite literate. We don't really know why he didn't write anything down. There are a couple possibilities. The idea of being misconstrued by future generations, or even into the fact that maybe it would affect his personal safety. That's not so crazy. You consider the consequences of what happened to Socrates when he was philosophizing. Well, he died. He was put to death for his ideas and the way he behaved and lived. So Socrates knew in his heart that the written word as Conducive as it was to disseminating knowledge could also lead to some dire consequences. Socrates didn't write anything down by choice. Luckily, a lot of people around him did write stuff down, so we know quite a bit of stuff about him, the man. Almost everything I'm going to tell you today is fact, so that's great. Uh, as we get into the ph- philosophy of Socrates, things get a little bit murky. And then we clear up again. You know, we get sunny skies and lots of facts when it comes to Socrates' death. One of the other things that I think is important to understand generally about Socrates, number one, he didn't write anything down. Number two, he lived his philosophy more acutely and more on a day-to-day basis, more like his lifestyle was his philosophy. It wasn't just something he thought about or worked on in an office and then went home. He walked the walk on a scale of 1 to 10. 1 being living your life with absolutely no moral or ethical center, no philosophical underpinnings whatsoever, and 10 being the most ardent absolutist absolutist that follows every rule, every law that he lays down. Socrates would be an 11. There has really never been or never probably never will be again another philosopher quite like him, in the sense that his quality of Socrates-ness sort of saturates whatever it's associated with. We see this today, and the fact that without writing anything down, 2,500 years later, he's still part of our collective consciousness. We still entertain Socrates. Even during his lifetime, after his lifetime, his qualities... Of Socrates,ness what made him special? Whether he was fighting in a war, whether he was philosophizing, whether he was walking the streets, whether he was doing stone cutting, whatever he was doing, he always did it in such a way that stuck out, that people noticed, that people, most of them, respected. People looked up to him. Even the highest, you know, ruling class type people of his of his day looked up to Socrates. You know, we don't have to look any further than to see the books and the dialogues that, you know, were written, written by people like Plato and Xenophon and really famous, you know, people of their day. They didn't narrate their own stories, though plenty of writers did, so it wasn't unheard of to do that. They chose Socrates to be their mouthpiece because credibility, that special deference that Socrates gives the words when you're reading his name in front of it isn't something that happens just because it's been 2,500 years. It happened back then too. So why was Socrates such an outlier? Why was Socrates so different even in his own time? Well, I'm going to argue that it all is due to where he lived and not just the lifetime he lived it, even though, interestingly enough, the um, golden age of the Athenian democracy really is from the time of Socrates' birth until his death, but that's more of a coincidence. What led up, what gave us this society, this golden democracy of Athens that nurtured someone like Socrates, to the extent that he was able to deliver and become the world's first moral philosopher. So in order to figure that out, we're going to have to look backwards a little bit. We're going to take some time and look at the conditions that brought us to Socrates. And the reason we do that is that you also, as much as you can't separate the philosophy of Socrates with the man Socrates, You can't separate the place he lived from him. Never was a man more in tune with the place he lived than Socrates was with Athens. Athens and Socrates had a love affair. They loved each other. Like most love affairs, it goes hot and cold. There are times when they're both in love. There are times when just one of them is in love. And eventually they also obviously somewhat fall out of love, since it is the city-state of Athens that puts Socrates to death. And I actually kind of liken this affair between Athens and Socrates as a sort of a version of beauty and the beast. The beast is Socrates, even though Athens acts far more beastly than Socrates does near the end of Socrates' life, up to and uh, leading to and up to obviously his death. Athens was a, you know, political animal like anyone else, and they suffered from the same problems. But for all intents and purposes, for about 40 years, and I know it sounds weird to say this, that's all it lasted. For about 40 years, the good times in Athens that brought us the golden age of of Euripides and Herodotus and Thucydides and Aeschylus and Sophocles and Pericles and Socrates all happened in a very short amount of time, which again is why I want to go backwards a little bit before we go forwards to find out how, why did it burn so hot, but only for such a short amount of time. So the beauty is Athens and the beast is Socrates because his contemporaries, if you probably asked, you know, especially someone who only heard of him, if you said, do you know Socrates on the street? And they say, oh, that that weird, ugly guy, Yes, that weird, ugly guy. That's probably the most common description of him until later in his life when people start calling him the most virtuous of all men. People who like him, people who follow him, people who he's worked with and fought with in in war love him. And the people who obviously are against him passionately dislike him. So he's our beast in this story. The beauty is Athens, the beast is Socrates. And we're going to look at both of them a little bit to kind of understand, without one, you probably didn't have the other. But like I promised, we're not going to jump right into moder- uh, to the golden age of Athens. We're not going to jump right into the birth of Socrates just yet, because we do have to spend some time talking about what, what conditions brought us to the golden age of Athens and the birth of Socrates We're going to go ahead and jump in the DeLorean. We're going to crank up 88 miles an hour. We're going to set the clock to about 40,000 years ago in the Greek peninsula. So I told you we're going way back. So yeah, 40,000 years ago. When we're talking about when Socrates was around in the Golden Age, just to give you some idea, he was around 500 to 400 BC. So we're talking 39,000 years before this. So a long time. I just want us to go back 40,000 years to the Greek Peninsula, take a look at it because people are just starting to kind of wander in. These tribes of people are wandering into the Greek Peninsula and they're discovering some of the peculiarities of this area, an area that looks a lot like Southern California in some ways, like Southern California with volcanoes. If you take away all the things we've done to make Southern California wonderful and livable, and just left it alone and kept it sort of arid, desert-like, you know, with definite seasons where you'll get only a certain amount of rain and the rest of the time is just sunny and warm. A lot of that's going to be what the Greek Peninsula is like. Their weather's a little bit more extreme. They're a little bit higher up, you know, in the latitude area, so they get a little bit more harsher winters. I mean, one could even say maybe Sacramento would be a good fit. You know, Sacramento-Roseville might be a good fit. Nonetheless, we're not talking about they're going to like the Rhine Valley or the Rhone Valley up in Germany, or they're not in the Midwest, you know, the Mississippi. What people have to do when they arrive in Greece is figure out where they can live. And, you know, Greece is really you know, broken down into three parts. A part where no one really can sustain life in the sense of like grow food or even scavenge food or have your goats eat the grass. And those are the mountains, like the volcanic mountain ranges of Of Greece so they're pretty you know daunting these ranges kind of crisscross all over the place they create like river valleys this world is sort of already cut up if you're a tribe going into Greece you're probably whatever way you pick to get in there is where and where you settle you're going to be you know separated from the other tribe by the natural boundary as you make your way down from the mountains you get into the foothills you'll start to see a little bit more habitation mostly by shepherds tending to their flocks. You have sheep and goats, not necessarily an area that's sustainable to build a village, which really lives, leaves you with this sort of pockets of arable land, which a lot of the ancients like Herodotus would sort of liken to these sort of turtle shells because they were sort of shaped like humps, meaning there was sort of an apex somewhat in the center or maybe elliptical shaped. It doesn't really matter, but there was the ability to sort of build your village center around this little bit of a height and then everything else sort of washes down off this turtle shell. This is where the arable land was. This is where you could plant crops. The starting point here is getting on these turtle shells of land and just trying to make a life for yourself. So the other sort of striking characteristic of this area, besides the way the land is, is the the sea itself, the Mediterranean or what they call the middle sea. The reason i bring it up is that the the middle sea of the mediterranean had no tides or has no tides at least no discernible tides though it's a large body of water what this does facilitate is a pretty easy adoption into using the sea as a way to move around traverse areas so you'll see that as you know the greek world grows they're much better at starting colonies that require people to get on a boat and go somewhere than they are at saddling up a bunch of people and having them march or walk their way somewhere. Now, the Romans are going to sort of be the opposite. The Romans are going to build a bunch of roads and make it easier for them to march places, but the Greeks literally never built roads. <laughs> just They just kept the same paths and built their villages and city-states on top of what was already there. Because these people, including up to and including Socrates and the people that lived in the golden age of wealth and the Athenian Empire and all that good stuff, were extremely poor. They stayed poor, they started poor, and the reason is that they lived in a place that it was very difficult from a natural resources to build great wealth. Greece is not a great place for great wealth. They don't have gold mines. They have a couple big silver mines, and that's about it. They live a life of simplicity based on the fact of where they chose to live. It's a very basic way of life, and they carry with them sort of this tradition of any group of people who are poor, which is sort of this community, communal type of living. Though there are, I'm sure, going to be people who are considered leaders at that time, generally speaking, they ran the village communally, socialist. I wouldn't go as far as to call them communists with a capital C because they don't they didn't affiliate with any sort of policies or politics at that time. And that word is sort of tainted in our day and age. But they really did live together. Whatever was contributed by one group, um, whatever was, you know, whatever windfall, they they all got in, you know, they got an elk or a great fishing uh, trip or maybe they struck up some trade with another village. All of that was shared for the most part. And typically what you saw was you would see you know, forage stuff like berries and plants and things like that. They would keep for themselves because everyone can forage. But when someone would land a large animal in a hunting party or, again, a large trove of fish from the sea, that was when it would be shared in the village itself. So the, they started from the, the earliest times. Working together and seeing each other as equals. So in this very basic way of life, in this sort of pre-village or the proto-village state of life, there's no formal religion. Though it's, we're pretty certain that they did have gods and goddesses that they sacrificed, their, you know, to that they basically appeased. But it's important to understand that. There's over 3,000 gods and goddesses in the sort of Greek canon, and the, the large ones that we know of, that the, they make movies like Clash of the Titans out of, and the ones that are in the Iliad themselves, those are sort of like the, the Fortune 500 gods. Those are the gods that city-states deal with. Those are the gods that lots of people are involved in. When We're talking about these sort of proto-villages. Though a lot of these gods were still around, at least in word of mouth, what they were worshiping or sacrificing to and appeasing were the home and hearth gods, gods of their family, their ancestors. And they were doing this not so much with the hopes of an afterlife or the hopes of, you know, something supernatural. They, their proto-religion at this point is simply pragmatic. They don't have a science. They don't know why crops grow or they don't grow. Sacrificing every time you grow crops, at least in their mind, is a great way to make sure that you're doing the right thing, even though it has no basis in reality. So that's their version, like I said, of sort of a proto-religion. They had no real government. The infrastructure at best was probably a clan or tribe where they had a a council, men who were more in the warlike battle raid, you know, the ones that put their life on the line and were heroic in doing so, tended to rise up faster. The men that could, you know, bring home the bacon literally would typically call the shots. They didn't see this as lording over people or hoarding anything, because remember, even when they brought their kill home, they would get a larger share of it, but they would still share it with everyone else in the truck. And they had no real laws. I mean, the only real law was the law of revenge, if you think about it. There was nothing on the books that made them There was no tort reform. There was no lawyers. There was none of that, obviously, though they did have the old fashioned sort of eye for an eye mosaic law from Exodus. It's no coincidence that Judaic tradition and Greek tradition have similar moralities at that point because everyone sort of started the same as sort of these wandering bands and tribes of people. And there was nothing more easy to understand that if you do harm to me, I'm going to go ahead and do harm to you. Throughout the literature of everyone you can get your hands on when it comes to writing back then, the major moral standing was treat your friends well and your enemies worse. The eye for an eye retaliatory type of morality was considered ethical, moral, and the duty. And just as a quick aside here, and I'm a big fan of the Iliad, one of my favorite characters of all time is Hector, the Trojan, you know, the brother of Paris. Hector and Achilles meet in this final battle, and at the end of this battle, which Achilles wins, Achilles proceeds to treat Hector awfully, terribly. Like dragging his body around the city of Troy and desecrating his body. You know, as a high school kid, encountering that for the first time all through my whole life, I'm like, what the hell? Why do we love Achilles so much? Or at least he gets Achilles' sort of scene heroically. Hector, though seen heroically, is always the lesser character when Achilles is obviously an asshole, and he's the worst guy ever, right? He only fights when he knows he's invulnerable, and then he treats the people he beats awfully. But after reading up on sort of the ancient morals of these people, it makes more sense now because it was actually, in their world, more moral and more ethical for Achilles to act that way and drag that body and desecrate that body and treat his enemies badly. Just like I said, remember, treat your friends well, and your enemies worse, honorable in that sense would be considered cowardly and almost disrespectful to Hector, as crazy as that sounds. So anyway, that's just to give you an idea, like when you're reading some of that old stuff and you're trying to make sense of their honor code and why they act this way and why they're so mean-spirited when they win, it's because they that was the right thing to do back then. To the point where, which was always confusing, going back to the Iliad, King Priam, who's the father of Hector, when he meets Achilles, near the end of the story, actually, like, says, you had no choice. That's what you do. Which, again, was completely befuddling up until, like, on on the level with me of Abraham and Isaac in the Bible and that whole kill your son sort of demand. Never really sat right with me and never sat right that Priam could sit with Achilles either. But there's, at least for the Achilles, Priam, Hector, triumvirate triangle there, it makes more sense to me now. I don't agree with it. I'm a different person, raised with different morals. But that's an understanding of that retaliation, that um, moral code that they live by. And it's a very, very ingrained and staunch moral code. And as these villages start to expand and the populations start to get more settled, we start to see the lifestyle that we are familiar with from the ancient Greeks. A lifestyle that some historians have called lazy. Lazy while others have called leisurely. To explain that a little bit better, I'm gonna turn to one of the books that I used in researching this topic. This is from a book that is a little bit older, written around 1911, prior to World War I, which really does give the person writing it a different perspective, not having gone through the atrocities of the World War I and World War II and all of the 20th century. So they're they're frankly a little bit more optimistic and a little bit more biased towards the things that they think are important, which change dramatically once millions of people start to die. Anyway, this book is called The Greek Commonwealth and it's by a a writer named Alfred Zimmern and it's a classic of its kind And, and it really is set up like a civics lesson to understand the Greek Commonwealth leading up to the Golden Age of Athens. Roughly in the same time frame, he explains or goes into an explanation of what Greek life was like once villages started to become large enough. Alfred Zimmern says, quote, Life in Greek lands is at once very hard and very easy. Or rather, dwellers in Greek lands are at once very hardy and very easygoing. The roughness and barrenness of the country. The changes between the seasons and the severity of the winters promote the survival of the fittest and have made the Greeks of all ages simple, tough, and abstemious. But the long, cloudless summers and the ease with which life is sustained on the very little have greatly simplified the problem of existence. The Greek need not and does not labor from morning to night to keep body and soul together. He has never needed and never liked sustained and monotonous activity of the kind which northern workers and northern economists tend to regard as the inevitable lot of all mankind. The Greek has never known what it is to be, in the common sense of the word, an economic man. The Greek word for unemployment means leisure, which, for business, he has no better word than the negative, which means absence of leisure. The hours and weeks of unemployment he regards as the best and most natural part of his life. The Greeks always lived with a fine margin of leisure, and leisure is the mother of all art and contemplation, as necessity is the mother of the technical devices we call inventions. The Greek peasant understood and enjoyed the depth and subtlety of Euripides, but had never thought of so simple a contrivance as a windmill. That's just an example of The perception of ancient Greece. And this perception is because once things get a little bit more stable, they're able to live off this land that at once is both very hard to live on, but when things start going right, it becomes relatively easy to live on. The main crops that these villages would grow, olives and wine, take a long time to grow. So they needed the security and protection of a village. And of, and of you know just the communal nature of protecting what they had. When they were left alone enough to grow these crops, these crops, after decades of growth, just produce amazing quantities of the foodstuffs and other parts of life that Greeks need. things like olive oil, which they happen to use for everything. they used it to cook with, they used it to light their lanterns with, and they also used it as soap. In fact, all the way up until Socrates' time, they're using olive oil as soap, which obviously can have some effect on how things smell. You can see that they still have this idea of using everything that they have to make their life easy. But when they have an easy life, they tend, instead of to improve it in the sense of creating new machines, paving roads, digging wells, they turn to a more introspective way. And that's another thing that Zimmern brings up is that the average ancient Greek would rather sit in the sun hungry and sunbathe than go find food. Maybe because they know that they'll eventually get that food, they wait long enough, maybe, or just the fact that they're if you combine this sort of communal survivability that they now have risen above a little bit, they're just one notch above dying of starvation, they're just waiting for their trees to ripen, I mean, what else are you gonna do? Except hang out and shoot the breeze. This sort of incremental change that happens in these villages as they start to grow really lay the foundation of combining their age-old nomadic communal lifestyle with a growing sense of confidence, and self-reliance that comes with a larger population. So as we head back towards our time machine and get back in the DeLorean, we've traversed quite a bit of time between our first stop 40,000 years ago. And as we move forward to the next episode, we're gonna start off at about 1500 BC. So if we span Upwards of 38,000 years in the last 35 minutes, so that's not too shabby. Thanks for joining me in the fray. Look forward to entertaining some philosophy with you soon. (laughs)